So on Friday night, we as a church gathered together to remember, to commemorate, to reflect on this thing called Good Friday. And if you could not be here on Friday night, I want to encourage you to go online and watch the video that night to really sync the story together. I I would have to say in 20 years of preaching, that is easily one of the most uh, favorite, profound, personally moving messages I've ever preached. There was something about it that drew me into the story in a way that probably I had not fully been drawn in before, and it caused me to reflect on this Good Friday by realizing that it was good for me. It was good for us. But for Jesus, it was not so good. For Jesus, it was radically painful. For Jesus, it was trauma. For Jesus, it was hardship. For Jesus, it was rejection. And so on Friday, he was pursued, betrayed, unaided, deserted. He was arrested, scandalized, beaten, whipped, mocked, ridiculed. Crowds jeered. Romans impaled. Thieves scorned. And God had forsaken this one that we remember. He was cursed. He suffered. He cried out and He died. That doesn't sound like a good Friday to me. But see, when we reflect on this particular Friday, we have to keep in mind the way the writer of Mark opens his gospel. He says, here begins the good news of Jesus the Christ. And sometimes the road to good news is painful. Sometimes the road to good news is suffering. Sometimes the road to good news is ache and anguish and just absolute despair. But in that there is good news. See, the writers of the Gospels are very interesting because they do something that, that, that kind of, as time goes on, gets more compressed, more intense, right? Uh, they look at 33 years of the life of Jesus. And then they focus in more and they, 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 they zone in on three years of His ministry. Three years of His teaching, His preaching, His healings, His confrontations, His miracles. But then it is odd that with all of this great stuff going on as he musters his forces and preaches the kingdom and pushes back against the devil, that it comes to this final week where on Monday, everybody is in his camp. Everybody sees him as the savior of his people. They love it. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then... There's Friday, punctured, 
riveted to crude planks. It is there that we see His body lay dormant. And I'm sure for those watching, uh, they would think, 33 years recorded, and now it seemingly has ended. And three years of ministry apparently wasted. But one of the things that Jesus said throughout His ministry, and it happens three times in the Gospel of Mark, He says, yes, yes, uh, there is 33 years to my life, and yes, there's three years to my ministry, but most important, there are three days. Three days. That will matter more than anything else. Three days where everything will change. Three days where you will rush through the emotions of absolute despair to total bewilderment to sudden just rejuvenation. But you have to let the three days play out. And we have to embrace the three days. It's all of the pain, the mocking, the abandonment, the wrath of God. The writer of the Gospel of Mark says, this all happened on Friday. Mark 15, verse 42. It all happened on Friday. Day one. Right? This idea of, of day one is important because on day one, everything looks bad. Because on day one, they are burying the slain slayer of death. Right? They're going to put him to rest because he's been put to death. But again, this shouldn't surprise them. It really shouldn't. Because Jesus told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But it's not going to end there. But they don't seem to understand that, or they don't embrace it, or maybe they think it's just eccentric, or visionary, or whatever, but, but, but they don't really get it. And so this Friday comes, and everybody's just in shock, and in grief, and it just, again, it seems over. And so it says, as evening approached. Now this is important because it's just told us that it is on Friday, it's the day before the Sabbath, and so with evening approaching, it means that the Sabbath is quickly gobbling up the landscape. And when it does, nobody can do anything for the entire next day. You just shut it down. And so it's on this Friday that God has brought atonement, which literally means at one He makes us one with Himself in this process, but nobody really gets that. Nobody sees that. Nobody embraces that. Nobody even can them exactly what's going on at this point. All they know is that the sun is setting, the Sabbath is coming, and we need to deal with the body. And so it says an honored member of the high council, Joseph of Arimathea, who was waiting for the kingdom of God to come, gathered his courage, and he went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And I look at this and I go, man, this is profound. It says he was a member of the high council. Joseph was one of the 81 members of the Sanhedrin council that condemned Christ to his death. This is a very unlikely character. To want to come forward and, 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 and claim the body 
of the one his counsel condemned. But we learn something about Joseph in the Gospel of John. We realize that secretly he was an admirer of Jesus. Privately, he was a follower. Now, Jesus says, if you want to be a private follower, you're not a follower at all. There are no private followers of Jesus. They may think so in their own mind, but in reality, Jesus says, you're not following. So, Joseph thought in some way he was a follower. In some fashion, he was an admirer of Jesus. But now the rubber hits the road. And with this, he says, I will take the body. This is huge. This is why it says he takes courage to go to Pilate. Now, I don't believe Joseph thinks that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. I think he just finally realizes, I need to come out on this. I need to admit, I was one who had an interest. I was one who cared. I was one who sought to follow, and now I want all to know. This is very bold, because in a lot of ways, you can look at this and say, man, but it's over. Jesus isn't who I thought he was going to be. I thought he was going to bring the kingdom that I was waiting for, but apparently not. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, I want it to be known that even though this man was dead, he was worth our admiration. And I won't leave him to disgrace on the cross. I will remove him and bury him with the honor that he is due. See, I love this because I go, the first real disciple of Jesus after the cross is a member of the council that condemned him. The first one to follow Christ immediately after his death is a very unlikely individual. But in this, he risks his social standing, his political clout, his financial future. It doesn't matter. He's going to take this dead man and give him what he is due. And then what's interesting to me about the story is that the first disciple after the cross to then take Jesus and in essence follow Jesus is joined by the first converts after the cross. It says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and he summoned the centurion. We learn about the centurion at the death of Christ as Christ dies, the centurion that killed him then looked at him and said, truly this man was the son of God. The first confessor of the sonship of Christ is the man that killed him. And the first follower of Christ after he's dead is a member of the council that condemned him. That's the good news. If you're either one of those, you would think that Jesus would say, no thank you. Not welcome. My sworn enemy. But that's not the gospel. That's not what this day is about. It's not about, I told you so, or I refuse you. It's about so great a sacrifice, and so great a love, and so great a salvation that brings forgiveness to all. To all. And so here you have this very strange amalgamation of characters. And with this, Pilate says, yes, I will give the body to Joseph. And so it says, and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. 
and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, another one of the the women that followed Jesus, uh, they saw precisely where Jesus' body was laid. And see, this is a profound truth for us because as they removed His body from the cross, as the body came down, so too our sin was removed from the cross because our sin was placed on the cross with Christ. That's what we learn on Good Friday. It wasn't just that He suffered. It isn't just that He was mocked. It isn't just that He bled. It's that He took our sin. He housed all of our offenses by the billions and suffered all hell for what we have done. Suffered it all. Suffered it complete. And so as He lays dead, so to our sin, dead in Him. And as He was brought from that cross and laid in this linen, so too our sin was brought down and laid in the linen. And in the same way that He was placed into the tomb and the stone sealed it away, so too our sin was placed in the tomb and sealed away. That is good news. That is very good news. That is um, freedom. That is a life without guilt there is a life in there without remorse because it is it is done but that was the first day there are three days and that second day that would have been a very interesting day that is the day of restless want for the sabbath restless want Because remember, he died on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. The sun sets, the Sabbath sets in. What's interesting about this is none of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of them write about the second day. None of them. I mean, Jesus made much of three days. Why nothing about the second day? Well, it's interesting. The the second day is, again, Sabbath. It's God's day of rest and reflection. You take Sabbath to rest in God, reflect on your week, realize He is your sufficiency, He is your hope, He is your grace. But all of these people that followed Jesus, they ran, they fled, they denied, they stood back, they weren't with Him. And as he lays in a tomb, they are hiding in some house somewhere. And imagine what that day was like. There would be ten reflecting on, why did I run? Why did I, why did I run? I mean, I, he was my friend. Why did I, why did, I can't believe I ran. There would be the women saying, why did we stand so far back? Why did we stay in the distance? He came up. He touched some of us. He healed some of us. He freed some of us. And we we just, we had to stand at a distance. We didn't want to be too associated. You have Peter, above all, who swore, I will not deny you. If I must die with you, I will die with you. I will stand with you. I will not run from you. And he's the one that said, damn it, I don't know him. I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. That man, I don't even call him by name. And now on the day of rest, he is restless, hopeless, aimless, leaderless, faithless. I mean, he's just, it's just absent for all of them. What have they done? 
and they have no courage. They are all hidden away. In other words, they are stuck in the second day. See, the first day, that's at one moment. The second day is to be a day of rest, but they are restless. Because what has happened in essence for them is that they have actually been forgiven. The cross has forgiven them, but they're stuck in this place of, I don't know the power of that forgiveness. I don't know the freedom of that forgiveness. Right now, I'm forgiven, but I have regret. Right now, I'm forgiven, but, but I don't have hope. Right now, I'm forgiven, but I'm just kind of going through life, getting by with anxiety and fear and, and just concern. Some of us get stuck in second day. Where Jesus literally, it says in Hebrews, becomes our rest. We don't have rest. We say, I believe I'm forgiven, but I don't have rest. I believe I'm forgiven, but I have anxiety. I believe and I'm forgiven, but I don't have hope. It's because we shut ourselves away, still distant, looking more at ourselves than looking at Him. Focusing more on our mistakes, our regrets, our stupidity, instead of looking at the one who says, yes, I took all of that, I suffered all of that, I have forgiven you, you are clean, now go. See, they're, they're not there. They're just stuck. Always waiting is the second day. And the second day is a long wait. A day of rest that has absolutely no rest. But they have a plan. At least some of them. And so going into Mark 16, verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. This brings us to the third day. Now, it's interesting with that scene. You think back earlier to the Gospel of Mark, there was a time where there was a woman that comes and anoints Jesus' body for burial too soon. Tragically, these women are too late. Because they did stand at a distance. They did hold back. They did want to wait. And I'm sure with that second day of regret and thought and, and, and just a sense of man, we've let our Lord down. They wanted to connect with Him one last time. So they come with these spices. Uh, they're not designed to preserve the body. They're just designed to make it smell better as it quickly gives in to rot and decay. But it's this one final moment, it's this rite of grief where they can touch His arms one last time. Where they can rub the wounds of His feet and see what has happened. Where they can push His hair across His face and for one last time see that face that looked at them in love and rescued them from misery. One last chance. Because the thing that is clearly fixed in their mind is that he is dead. That's why they are going to bring these spices to anoint him. He's not coming back. But they want to one last time look on the one that they love. As a pastor, I've had this opportunity where I end up at the bedside of people that have just passed. Maybe my minutes or an hour 
And you see how family members do this. You see, I remember this first time I ever did, I was a young pastor. This man named Harry was a dear friend, really great man, uh, had passed. And I remember watching his wife uh, rebutton Harry's shirt. And she combed his hair. And she kissed his head and kissed his lips and gave him a hug and curled up next to him for a minute. Because she knew this was going to be it. And so that's exactly what these women are thinking. This is it. This is over. We're rolling into third day. And the third day will be the last day we ever see him again. And so it says very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And I love that. They want to go. They want to see. They're armed with the spices of mourning. And as they were going, they were saying to one another, well, who will roll away the stone for us for the entrance of the tomb? It's a very large stone. How are we going to do this? Now, I have to be honest. I am shocked that women didn't think that through in advance. I really, you women think through everything in advance. I can see like a bunch of bros all going to the tomb going, dude, we didn't think about this. Right? I saw this thing on Mythbusters though. I think it'll work. You know what I mean? Like, that's how guys would roll. You know, didn't, didn't even plan. Let's just go make it happen. Right? But they're eager, they're in shock. They don't know how to fully even address all the realities. They just know their heart. They just want to connect one last time. And so they move toward the tomb. They're coming up on the scene. And then it says, and looking up, right? Because they're down, grief, despair, shame. But then they look up. And they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And I always wonder, what went through their mind at this point when they see that this is opened up in this way? I mean, was it confusion? Was it fear? Was it intrigue? I mean, what was going on in their mind? And then more to the point, it's open. So which one of them said, I'm not going in, you go in. Right? Like, no, I'm not doing it. Okay, rock, paper, scissors, right here. You know, like, I don't know. And then how did they do it? Did, like, did they grab a stone and like, I'll, I'll throw it in first. Do, 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 do. Okay, sounds okay. Right? You know, like, how did they do it? Did they peek around? Did they jump in and go, ah! Right? I don't know. I don't know. But I know they enter into the space where they expect to see a dead man. And instead they see a young man. They don't see Jesus. In fact, it's interesting, none of the gospel accounts show us the risen Jesus at the tomb in that particular way, like inside the space. One shows us Jesus outside of the tomb, talking to one of the women a little while later, but in the tomb, you you don't see him risen. But they see this young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. See, this is an emissary of Jesus. This young man in a white robe represents Jesus. And a white robe sitting at the right represents Jesus at the right hand of the Father in glory. And he has a message. He says, I am a spokesman for the one that you are looking for. It's this angel that appears very safe as appearing as a young man. And I love this. He says to them in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. Uh huh. I mean, really. You know what I mean? It's like my kids love to jump out at me around corners. And everything went, boo! And I went, huh! And they go, 
Why are you being alarmed? Because you booed me. You know what I mean? That's why. It's a little freaky. I come to find a dead man, I find a young man. And a tomb that's empty. He says, do not be alarmed though. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. What's interesting about this little phrase, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is that word seek comes up ten times in the Gospel of Mark. And every time, it is tethered to the idea where people were seeking to limit Jesus. People were seeking to reduce who he was. People were seeking to trap him. People were basically seeking to not let him be God or Messiah. And so basically what this young man says is, you're seeking again the one that you have limited. You've limited him by thinking he's dead. You've limited him by thinking he's still here. You're seeking a limited Christ. One that you just see as the Nazarene. One who you see is crucified, dead, and gone. But you know what? You seek the wrong Christ because you seek a limited God. He says, let me open up your eyes. Let me open up your mind. Let me open up your heart. Let me open up your dreams. He says, literally, he was crucified. But he has risen. He is risen. That's more than a cause for a simple amen. That changes everything. The entire human history spectrum, the entire separation between us and God radically changed because He is risen. That is huge. And so not only is He risen, He's not here. He's on the move. Notice in the Bible, it doesn't say he rose from the grave and went straight to heaven. We're going to see this in a second. That he has risen means he's up to something. He's risen and he's on the march. He's risen and he's going to change everything. That's what the the guy's getting at here by he has risen and he's not here. Then he says, but look, the place where they laid him. Go back just a couple of verses before. Those women saw exactly where he'd been laid. And instead, what they find, according to John's gospel, is the linens in which he was wrapped. And there was a special linen that they put over his face, and it says it was perfectly folded, sitting there. Which I'm sure Mary, his mother, had to be really proud. Like, he folded his clothes, even in the resurrection. You know, like, right? Like, it's my boy, perfect. Um, and so, they have this scene And in this scene, this third day where the hero lives in victory, he goes on the move. And that victory and that third day extends to us. It's not just his third day. It's not just his championship. He's not just the solo trophy holder. But he is the trophy holder so that everyone that follows him becomes a trophy of love and grace and hope and eternity. That's why the third day matters to us. That's why we want to live not simply in the shock of the first day, not simply in the aimlessness of the second day, but really in the victory of the third day. We are people of the third day. We are not people of the first day, but we're forgiven in the first day. We are not people of the second day, but it value, gives us value to reflect on the second day. 
But we are people in Christ of the third day. And in that, we are victors as He is victorious. We live first in the victory of His grace. The victory of His grace. Mark 16, 7, this young man, this angelic figure says, but go tell. Right? The one that you tried to limit by thinking is just a man is God. The one crucified is risen. He's not here. He was here. He's not now. So what should you do? He says, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. This is profound. Go back to what you know of the story. What we see in the story is that Peter was a denier. What we see in the story is that the disciples all fled. And yet what we see Jesus bringing that first day of the week is forgiveness and redemption. He could have just as easily risen and said, Peter, I told you so. Could have. I mean, Jesus stuck the landing on what Peter was going to do. He could have looked at the other ten and said, hey, remember at dinner and I said, you were all going to abandon me? And you said, oh no, that ain't going to happen. Hey, that happened. But he doesn't do that. He says, uh, I, I need you ladies to go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going to meet up with them in Galilee. Where all of that ministry started, where Jesus went and he walked ashore and he said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to use you in ways that will tra- transform the world. He says, let's hook up again because that's not over. And I'm sure all those guys, when they heard the news, could have been like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 we, we ditched him. But see, the cross paid those sins too. Every denial, every rejection, every footprint running away from the scene in the garden, forgiven. Everything we have ever done, everything we will ever do, Forgiven, cleansed, made whole. We have one mint, literally atonement, at one mint with God because of the victory of His grace. Peter sins, crucified, buried, and dead. The other ten, crucified, buried, and dead, their sins. Matt Boswell, all of my sins, crucified, dead, and buried. All of your sins, if you know Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, gone. That's their day, grace. I don't deserve that. They didn't deserve that. If you've ever had anybody wrong you really deeply, the last thing you want to do is extend grace unconditionally. Especially when you're the one that suffers for their folly. But Jesus is the God of grace. We also see in this the victory of His greatness. Because on receiving this news, where they're supposed to go and tell, it says, and they went out and they fled from the tomb, uh, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
there's a word between, there's like three emotional things here, right? Uh, Trembling, right? Afraid, but in the middle is astonishment. This word astonishment is used dozens of times in Mark. He taught with one that had great authority and they were astonished. He healed an individual and everybody looked and they were astonished. He cast out a demon and everybody who was there were astonished. I mean, every time Jesus did something profound, everyone was astonished. Why? Because every profound thing showed that he is God, showed that he is king, showed that he is Lord, showed that he's in control. Yes, we should be astonished. But then in this, it's extra cool and awesome because they're also trembling and we're afraid. Why this is and what we learn is that we sometimes need to dislodge our thinking from the frail, earthly, meek Jesus. This counter-revolutionary that we looked at, at sometimes, we go, he was Gandhi-like or something like that, right? We, we see this very humanized Jesus. We identify with this very humanized Jesus. But what you have in the resurrection is an exalted Jesus. You have a king of kings, you have a lord of lords, you have a sovereign ruler. And that is why they're afraid, that is why they're trembling. Because on Friday he was the lamb slain, but on Sunday he is the lion. Powerful. In fact, Mark's gospel is symbolized by the lion Christ. Not the lamb Christ. Because he rules and reigns as supreme. And now they know this. And while we can approach the throne with boldness because of what Jesus has done. Because we are forgiven in him. And while that is of great, great grace. At the same time, we keep in mind. That while he is good. He is not necessarily safe. By that, what I mean is he is still a lion. He is still king. He is still supreme. And these women, they know it. So they run and they flee the tomb. But as they exit that space and they're going across the field, something goes with them that they really did not have at sunup that morning. And that is the victory of his gift. The victory of his gift. Paul writes about this both in Ephesians and Philippians. This is the gift given to all of us because Sunday came, because we live in the third day. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those whom he has called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. He says, I pray that you will also understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. Says that is the same mighty power that rides Christ from the dead and seated him at the right place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you realize that you have the same power that rose Christ from the dead? Paul says, I pray that you get it. I believe he prays this because so often we still live life like second day people. Right? We fret, we fear, we have anxiety, we lack hope, we're discouraged. Stock, second day. Paul says, oh man, but I pray that you realize that that power is your power. 
That power is your power. This is why Paul, man, that's all he wanted. You go into Philippians chapter 3. He says, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. He says, man, I'm not trying to earn it anymore. I'm not trying to work for it anymore. I just want Jesus. And he says, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Third day is power. Third day is victory. Third day is confidence. Third day is assurance. Third day says you are secure. Third day says you are more than a conqueror through Christ. See, that's third day. That's the gift. You and I have power in Christ in the pilgrimage of life because He is risen. You have left the tomb. Ephesians 1 says you were risen and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And because of that, you have all the blessings therein. And so because of these simple truths, I would challenge us to live, not only as third-dayers, but live as the people that Jesus rose so that you and I could be. So that you and I could be everything He designed. That leads us to the hero in the next chapter. For this last year, I've spent a lot of my life in the Gospel of Mark. And every time a book ends, as we end today, this Gospel, I'm always kind of sad Because they go, well, it's the end of the book, and I don't always want the book to end. Well, here's what's interesting about Mark's gospel. It doesn't end. It stops. Uniquely, this particular gospel stops. It stops at verse 8. In fact, if you have a Bible, you'll notice that verses 9 through 20 have a bracket, have a star, have a little footnote at the bottom. And basically they say, you know, the oldest, best manuscripts of Mark, they stop at verse 8. It just stops. It doesn't end. Just all of a sudden comes to a halt. But human nature hates this. We hate this. I mean, you ever go to a movie and it's going along and all of a sudden it just goes to black and there's the credits? Yeah! Every Coen brother movie ever made just stops except for raising arizona right but they just stop and human nature says i don't want it just to stop i need it to end and so for that uh scholars have kind of pieced together matthew and luke and john and parts of acts and created these endings for mark to go this is kind of how it would have come to a conclusion but mark didn't write that that's why it's bracketed and has a footnote and says all of that really it just stopped but I believe it stopped for a reason. When it says there again in Mark 16, 8, and when they went out and fled the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, they were afraid. It's really then dot, dot, die. It's almost as though the women left speechless and Mark is totally comfortable to say, and I'm going to conclude speechless. I'm not, I don't have to give you the next line. Because again, go back to the way Mark started off his gospel. Here begins the good news of Jesus the 
Christ. I'm going to tell you about his good news. Now notice, Mark doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He doesn't give the lineage of Jesus. He doesn't give the upbringing of Jesus. He starts his gospel right at where the ministry is kicking off. An abrupt start. And he says, and he went and he taught and he healed and he cured and he cast out demons and then he was betrayed and he went to a cross and the crowds mocked him and God poured wrath on him and he died for our sins and he was buried and then he rose three days later and women went to their tomb and then they ran out afraid dot 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 and I believe that dot 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 that idea literally means from here on out it's to be continued by you That's why I say the story doesn't end. The story stops in Mark. But it challenges each and every one of us to to look at this Jesus and, and to say to ourselves, what am I going to do with the story? What am I going to do with the man slain? What am I going to do with the man that lives forevermore? If he saved me to a newness of life in victory, living the third day, how am I going to live the third day? How do I make my life? Mark chapter 17, verse 1. Because Jesus still wants to tell the story. It's just now he tells a story through us. He came, he was Christ, he died to save us, to use us, to keep advancing the story. Every one of us is a plot line in his big story. Every one of us is a life shaped and changed by his story. And so right now, I want you to bow your heads, just all of you, just kind of get alone, get in that tight spot of privacy. And as you do, I want you to ask yourself a question. And there's really two different types of people in the room. I'm very grateful that both are here. One is the type that is embraced the first day, the second day, and they live in the third day. And my encouragement and challenge is to to look at your life and say, how can I live effectively in the third day? Am I living as a Joseph of Arimathea that takes the great risk? Or am I living as a Peter of the first day? Am I living as the discouraged of the second day? Because I don't need to because I'm not a person of the first day or a person of the second day. I'm a person of the third day. I have victory in him. I am more than a conqueror through him. I have power as a pilgrim because of him. And this is a day for you to go, man, I I want to uh, reconnect, recalibrate. The other type of person in this room is going to be the person in this room It says, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know this forgiveness. I don't know this alleviation of guilt. Of fear, of unknown, of incompleteness. I'm just writing my own story untethered from a grander story. Just hoping that in the end it all pans out okay. The Bible would say today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day where you can embrace the Christ of the first day. And from that sense, the power of and forgiveness that came with the third day. If today is that day where you sense God's draw and pull on your life, and you go, I need this Jesus, right where you're at, you can simply pray a prayer that says, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. 
Thank you that you were willing to take my offenses, my sin, my guilt, my mistakes, my just goof-ups in life, and free me from those to where I don't have to stand guilty any longer. I don't have to look down on myself in shame. But rather, I live in your victory. If you make that your prayer with your words, He hears you. He calls you into Himself. He saves you and changes you to live as a third-day person. If you've made that your prayer, I would love to know that. Around the space today, we'll have elders that have little white cards around their neck. You would talk to them or the friend that brought you to let us know you made that decision. We would love to know that. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for these profound truths that you give to us. We worship you. We celebrate your your life. You've risen indeed. Amen.